I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Hey listeners, we have an ask of you. Between reading and rereading resources, reaching out to content experts, and reviewing our material, this podcast takes time, effort, and resources to share it with you every week. We are humbled and grateful for the listener and affiliate interest over the past several months and the scores of messages received letting us know that this podcast has incrementally improved their test prep has been inspiring. Special thanks to the community for engaging and interacting with the show. We want to keep the podcast focused on content that informs, prepares, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. We've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. If pushing pediatrics is a part of your day or week, and you love what we're doing, please visit the link in any of our episode guides and support us any way you can today. Hello, and welcome back. We have your last two case files. You guys, time is flying and we have been with you every step of the way like we promised. We are wrapping up season two, but we are not done yet. We are really trying to tailor these last few weeks to what you need. We will be with Helen and Jessica, the creators of PCS Advantage in the coming weeks to answer all of your last minute questions, review any tricky subjects, and provide great test-taking strategies for your big day. The best way we can help you is for you to submit your questions to us. So head over to Instagram, shoot us a DM of your question or topics you need a bit more information on. Everything will be anonymous. And remember, other people likely have the same questions as you. The first case this week is on congenital limb deficiency, proximal femoral focal deficiency. This is case 25 from the case files book. This case is very long, so hang tight. It has a lot of good things for you to be thinking about. A nine and a half year old male was diagnosed at birth with right proximal femoral focal deficiency, Aiken B classification. Since two years of age, the patient has received orthotic interventions to equalize leg lengths for an anticipated leg length discrepancy of 20 centimeters. 
Based on his Aiken classification and absence of any other orthopedic anomalies, his medical team initially proposed three treatment options, Syme amputation with knee fusion, Van Ness rotation plasty procedure with knee fusion, or limb lengthening operations staged over several years until he reached skeletal maturity. The patient's family chose the third option of staged limb lengthening. At two years of age, the initial treatment consisted of a shoe lift, which provided adequate compensation of the leg length discrepancy during gait. As he grew, the limb length discrepancy increased and the height of the right shoe lift was increased to equalize the limb lengths. However, the height required to equal his leg length discrepancy created balance and coordination challenges during gait. At age five years, 10 months, the patient underwent his first limb lengthening procedure, a right femoral osteotomy and application of a unilateral external fixator. Following six months of lengthening, the external fixator was removed and a spica cast was applied for eight weeks to allow for adequate bone healing. In this first lengthening, five centimeters of length was achieved. Shortly after cast removal, the patient developed a femoral bowing deformity that was treated with casting, followed by bracing and outpatient physical therapy. At age seven, he underwent subtrochanteric femoral osteotomy with valgus correction for varus flexion deformity and distal femoral osteotomy to correct for anterior bowing with placement of an external fixator for a second lengthening procedure. Eight months after application of the second external fixator, non-union occurred at the subtrochanteric pin site requiring a pin site allograft. Lengthening continued for 10 months with fixator removal at the end of this period. The patient's postoperative course was further complicated by a femur fracture through the regenerate site. Four months after the second lengthening, the therapist noted a six-inch leg-leg discrepancy. The limb deficiency team at the child's hospital where the patient was receiving care met with the patient and his parents to review his surgical history and discuss future surgical prosthetic and orthotic options that would match their goals. After reviewing the patient's multiple complications that included four femoral fractures, non-union, continued limb length discrepancy, development of osteopenia, and restricted function, the patient and his parents indicated that they were now open to future options of syme amputation with knee fusion or rotation plasty. However, the patient's mother stated that she wanted to wait a year or so to give her son a break from surgery and requested that the team continue with conservative orthotic or prosthetic intervention. The goals of conservative treatment include equalizing the patient's limb length to protect the femur from future fracture and angular deformities and allowing increased activity without the fear of fracture. Since the initiation of limb lengthening, the patient's overall activity has been limited. He has been walking with a walker and a tall shoe lift on the right. He wants to begin participating in sports and other activities that are currently restricted due to increased risk of fracture with moderate to high impact activities. Therefore, the patient, his family, and the team have decided to proceed with an extension prosthesis that incorporates external knee hinges to allow flexion of the limb and clearance during swing phase of gait. Limb length was afforded by adding a pylon with a prosthetic foot. Since receiving the extension prosthesis with the articulating knee, 
The patient has progressed to walking without an assistive device and participating in physical education class and recess at school. He has not had fractures or progression of femoral deformity. At nine and a half years of age, the patient and his parents have made the time-sensitive decision for definitive surgical correction of the limb length discrepancy, choosing the Van Ness rotation plasty with knee fusion over a SIME amputation with knee fusion. Rotation plasty offers below the knee function, while the SIME offers a knee disarticulation amputation functional level. The knee fusion stabilizes the proximal residual limb. The purpose of this physical therapy session is to initiate a plan of care that includes a brace to enable the patient to participate in age-appropriate chosen activities before the definitive surgical correction of his limb length discrepancy. Okay, let's unpack this a little bit. Before we get into the considerations, interventions, and precautions, let's first make sure we understand the health condition. Proximal femoral focal deficiency, also known as PFFD for short, is a rare congenital anomaly characterized by failure of normal development of the proximal femur and hip joint. The clinical classification is defined by the degree of hip involvement and femoral shortening. There is a great picture of this classification in your case files book. I would make sure to just briefly review the classifications. Really quick, A and B, the femoral head is present, and in C and D, the femoral head is not present. Type D is the most severe. PFFD has unique characteristics, and the characteristics vary depending on the severity. There may also be associated impairments like knee instability with absence of the cruciate ligaments, genuvalgus, fibula deficiency with talocalcaneal coalition, and foot deformity, etc. The goal of surgical and prosthetic management for PFFD is to improve functional ambulation based on the degree of hip and knee stability, femoral shortening, and condition of the foot and ankle. The first goal is usually to achieve optimal hip alignment, and then the focus can move down the chain to some other interventions like limb lengthening, a rotation plasty, or a sime amputation. Those words should be familiar to you. You need to have a basic understanding of surgical interventions like limb lengthening, rotation plasty, and SIME amputations, along with other common surgical interventions related to orthopedics and amputations. Also a reminder to look over common prosthetics for the lower extremity and upper extremity. This case is pretty specific to the PFFD condition, but a lot of the underlying concepts are common to amputation. In this case, Prosthesis and orthoses are used before and after surgery. Preoperatively, shoe lifts with or without AFOs may be used to address the leg length discrepancy. If an extension prosthesis is needed, they recommend incorporating a knee joint to allow for early skills like crawling and transitioning into standing with more ease. This also helps obtain pelvic symmetry. In this case specifically, they chose a rotation plasty over a SIME amputation as his definitive surgical correction. Quickly, a SIME amputation is a disarticulation of the ankle. In most cases, that joint sits at about the level of the contralateral knee and will become the knee joint. A disarticulation prosthesis is used and the function of the prosthesis is an above the knee. The child here chose a rotation plasty, which is a below the knee level prosthesis and uses the anatomical foot and ankle to create a functional knee to power the prosthetic knee. 
In a study cited in the Case Files book, children with rotation plasty demonstrated significantly improved prosthetic knee function during stands and produced greater knee extensor moments at preferred speeds compared to those with SIME procedures. Patients with SIME amputations also had more compensations on the non-involved leg. This makes sense, right? We are essentially comparing above the knee function to below the knee function. And we obviously know that having below the knee function usually results in improved parameters. There are, of course, a lot of factors, but this is definitely something to keep in mind. General physical therapy plan of care and goals are as follows. Equalize limb length by ongoing monitoring of limb length discrepancy with recommendations for appropriate height shoe lifts. Support the development of symmetrical movements through physical therapy interventions and by equalizing limb lengths until definitive surgical decisions are made. Increase strength of involved lower extremity and core musculature. During limb lengthening, increasing range of motion in joints above and below the involved section of bone. Maintaining weight bearing precautions. Increased independent functional mobility with assistive devices as indicated through each phase of intervention and promote participation in age-appropriate activities. Physical therapy interventions to focus on include patient and caregiver training on active and passive range of motion to the involved limb, bed mobility, transfers, use of assistive devices, exercises to improve strength and range of motion, pin care, scar management, general strengthening and conditioning exercises, education on diagnosis and possible surgical, orthotic, prosthetic, and therapy interventions, and home programming. Precautions include osteopenia, which increases the risk for fractures, pin site infection, emotional ability related to multiple surgeries, and fear of movement and falls. Let's review the evidence-based clinical recommendations. In individuals with PFFD, those who have rotation plasty demonstrate fewer gait compensations compared to those who have a SIME amputation. Like we talked about before, in individuals with PFFD, the surgical option of rotation plasty surgery offers below-the-knee amputation level function compared to the SIME amputation, which provides above-the-knee function and requires a prosthetic knee. This is grade B evidence. Physical therapy plays an important role in the post-surgical management of children with PFFD. This is grade C evidence. Rotation plasty is a viable surgical option for select children with PFFD. This is grade B evidence. This case study is obviously extremely specific to a rare orthopedic condition, but it does bring some light to important concepts that you want to make sure you review. Prosthetics and limb deficiency is definitely a testable area. So make sure you have some understanding of recommendations, especially review the different types of limb deficiency and the prosthetics recommended for each level. This may be related to congenital issues, trauma, or cancer. Moving on to case 26, our last case for you. This case is of a relapsed club foot. A physical therapist is examining a five-year-old boy who was born with bilateral idiopathic club feet. As an infant, his feet presented in forefoot adduction and hindfoot plantar flexion. He was treated conservatively with the Ponsetti method with excellent results. He had weekly progressive serial casting for six of the eight weeks of his life. 
At eight weeks of age, bilateral percutaneous Achilles tenotomies were performed and he was casted for three weeks. At 11 weeks of age, he began wearing a foot abduction brace consisting of an adjustable length metal bar with foot plates onto which a pair of boots is attached. The wearing schedule was 23 hours per day for the first six weeks and decreased to 18 hours per day for an additional six weeks. When the child wears the brace, the lower extremities are abducted and the feet are externally rotated. This position helps maintain the stretch created by the serial casting and tenotomy procedure. From the age of six months to four years, he has worn the foot abduction brace for 10 to 12 hours each night. The boy was able to stand on his own without holding on to an external surface by the age of 12 months and ambulated without assistance by 13 months. Six months prior to the physical therapy examination, he discontinued the use of the foot abduction brace. In the two months prior to the examination, he experienced a significant growth spurt and has been ambulating haphazardly and falling more frequently. His mother took him to see an orthopedic surgeon who felt his left foot was beginning to demonstrate club foot relapse. On the left, end range dorsiflexion and forefoot abduction were limited, both motions approximately 10 degrees shy of neutral. On the right, dorsiflexion measured approximately 10 degrees and forefoot abduction was roughly 15 degrees. The plantar surface of the left foot was also, quote, bean-shaped. The surgeon decided that the left lower extremity should be serial casted to improve alignment. Following the completion of serial casting, the child was referred to physical therapy. We can start by doing a brief review of clubfoot. Clubfoot is an equinovarus foot deformity present at birth. The hind foot is positioned in plantar flexion and the forefoot is adducted beyond neutral alignment. The equinovarus position of the foot is a result of rotation of the talus medially on the calcaneus. As a result, the fetal foot grows with a shortened longitudinal arch of the foot. This then leads to an elongation of the tissues on the lateral aspect of the foot and puts the fibularis muscles at a biomechanical disadvantage to work, further leading to deformity of the foot due to asymmetrical muscle pull. Initial correction is usually completed via the Ponsetti casting method and then is recommended that the child wear a foot abduction brace for five years. This helps hold the foot on stretch along the medial column. Noncompliance of brace wearing is closely associated with recurrence of club foot. General physical therapy plan of care and goals for this case include improved range of motion, improved great toe extension while the first ray is held in a neutral dorsiflexion, improved balance and strength, improved gait pattern, improved risk of club foot relapse, and identify and address gross motor deficits as compared to age-matched peers. Interventions to address these goals include patient and family education regarding club feet and the risk of joint contracture, development, and asymmetrical muscle strength. Monitor progress with valid and objective outcome measures, therapeutic exercises to address muscle tightness and weakness, and home program instruction. Precautions to think about include stress fracture prevention following serial casting, avoidance of high impact activities such as running, jumping, and hopping, identify and prevent compensatory strategies during higher level balance and weight bearing activities.
We talked before about having good objective examination, and in this case, gait is a huge area we're going to want to look at. There are a lot of methods of gait assessment. The book mentions the observational gait scale as a quick visual tool that requires no specific equipment and yields objective measurements. You can also do video analysis or a more formal gait analysis if you have the equipment. The book also discussed other useful outcome measures like the 10-meter walk test, the two-minute walk test, the timed up and go, and the single leg stance test. Let's end with some evidence-based clinical recommendations. Non-compliance with wearing the abduction foot brace is closely associated with recurrence of deformity. This is grade A evidence. Seems like good education to provide to families that are early on in the clubfoot diagnosis. The first indication of clubfoot relapse is increased in-towing during stance phase of gait. This is grade A evidence. That case brings into the forefront to make sure you're confident with your anatomy. Understanding the underlying structure of a deformity is important and can lead you to the right answer. If you know the deformity, then you can think backwards through the treatment process. We have hoped you found our review of these case files helpful this season. We really wanted to get your case-based brain firing because this can really help you come test day. Some of these cases were obviously very specific, but being able to see the bigger picture is an important concept. We still have a few weeks left with you. We will be wrapping up our interviews on the different pediatric practice areas and recording some review episodes with Helen and Jessica from the PCS Advantage study program. Remember, this is your chance to have your questions answered. Everything is anonymous, so email us or shoot us a DM on Instagram or Facebook. We would love to help you. Also remember, there's still time to support this podcast. If you have found our content useful in your preparation, you can support us. There's a link in every episode summary. That is it for this week. Happy studying. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.